With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. All right. Now, now I'm recording. <laughs> well, you want to you wanna make your introduction before we go live here? You got three minutes. Uh, no, I'm just... Uh... Whenever we start, I've already put it in there. I mean, it's just a Waltz in Our Mind show. It's uh, 8 o'clock Central Time over here. And uh, that was Terry Dodd that you just heard. And uh, Dr. Kate, Terry, and Red Beckman are going to be joining. Well, it's their call. I'm going to be joining them tonight. And uh, I'm simulcasting on WordNet, so I don't have to download the call later. (laughs) Might as well kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, yeah. I, I I got the board muted, so anybody who shows up here is not going to be able to participate. Two minutes until showtime. Uh, I'm ready to run outside and get uh, get on the you know call back in if I have to. But my signal here has been pretty good all day. I was going to drive into town, but I think I'll be all set. You can hear me, okay, can't you? We hear you just fine. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I'm wondering if you would mind if I asked you to do the opening prayer tonight. Uh, I wouldn't mind, but uh, it's going to be along the lines of God, thank you for everything. And that's about it. <laughs> Although that's all right. That's, that's, what else um, is there to say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mind. I don't mind at all. And, uh, So I didn't have a chance to really write the outline. I wrote some notes. One minute until showtime. That's okay. We'll get you through. Jerry, I'm going to go ahead and mute myself. Okay. Yeah, just take it wherever you want to go. It's fine with me. If you want to... I've got... I mean, just some basic stuff. I thought... You're just covering the, the experiences I've had, I guess, and just going from there. Um, right. Yeah. I'll just roll with it. So we're live in about 30 seconds, I think. All right. Your show will go live in five seconds. Four, three, two, one. Blog Talk Radio. Well, you may throw your rock, hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man. But it sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, run on, 
<laughs> I just find it. I find. I find it. I've never had any reruns where people did that, except on, on these shows that uh, you've done with us before. So, it's good to have you back. I'll give you the floor. Well, thank you, Terry. Uh, there's been a lot of people who've contacted me and said, uh, you know, we hear you talk and, and you give us the impression that you're a Christian or that you're born again, and and I've never really addressed any of this stuff. So I just wanted to give some background. Uh, I was born in Canada, and in the uh, mid-60s, my parents came to the States, and actually, like, I think it was 1968, and by the early 70s, my parents were born again, and they uh, they were really charismatic. They uh, really researched the word and eventually set up workshops for other Christians to go to on weekends where they would work on their marriages and, and work on relationships, you know, like uh, retreat weekends. And they did that for years and years, and they're still involved with that today. And uh, I had, I was in, um, I was with my parents at a seminar, I think it was in, uh, well, I, I know it was July 5th, uh, 1987. I think it was in uh, Ontario or Toronto, I can't remember, Ottawa. It was up there someplace. And Ron Ball was the, uh, the speaker on Sunday morning. So after the, a weekend-long seminar, the host said, you know, tomorrow we're getting together for a non-denominational worship service. If you guys are still in town, uh, why don't you guys stop by? We can hang out together. And I did that. And I, I believe I was born again on that day. Uh, my mom thinks it was just a confirmation because she said that uh, I was born again when I was seven or eight years old in the early 70s. So the, the bottom line is, you know, I I believe in God. I believe in salvation. I I you know I fully accept Christ as my Savior, and uh, and I do act that way. I don't talk about it a whole lot because I'm dealing with people from other areas. But I certainly act it out. And for those of you who've always had that question, uh, if you happen to be listening, there you go. Yes, I am a Christian. <laughs> um, I was uh, married in 1991. And, you know, I mean, my life has involved a lot of law. And, and the reason is because of a divorce, which is where it all started from. But I got married in uh, 1991, never really got into trouble before uh, I got married or after, right up until my divorce is where uh, the legal issues came into being, where uh, I had four daughters and uh, I really don't want to get into the nitty gritty of it because I'm not complaining about anything. It's it just turned it turned bad and basically I lost you know my dogs my house the car uh, the 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 all the friends I had uh, in in town I was forced to relocate and this all happened over a weekend over a restraining order which lasted six days because it was it was a, you know it was no good I threatened to have her uh, taken out for perjury and she dropped the whole thing but my attorney told me not to go back and the the reality that something could t- something could just step into your life and rip your life away like that was was amazing and, and I wanted to know how did this happen you know why is there a system set up that can just destroy your life so quickly over nothing over something that didn't even happen and that began my pursuit and I I didn't see my daughters uh, I saw two of them for a while um, actually quite a while. But uh, two of my daughters, after about six months of us being separated, decided they weren't going to see me anymore. 
And for some reason, the courts thought that was okay. And I thought, you know, if they didn't want to go to school anymore, what would you be doing about that? You'd arrest, you know, the parents for not sending them to school and not all this other stuff. But it's okay that they don't see their dad. And after two years of not seeing my daughter, my you know, my two oldest daughters, the, the two youngest ones were still visiting, um, I decided, you know, to do some UCC paperwork, some legal stuff, and I got into all that which I had been, you know, looking into for a while. And I took it too far. And if you want to read about that, you can go to the New Hampshire Bar uh, Journal, the uh, fall 2005 edition, uh, where they wrote all about my case and all the stuff I did. But basically, uh, I put notices in, not notices, I put in, um, well, yeah, notice of lien on the uh, public record regarding the real estate owned by attorneys, judges, my ex-wife, my ex-attorney. You know, I, I wanted out of the system, and I told them to back off or I was going to go after them. You know, it, it was threatening, you know, in, in a sense, although it was, I was acting on compensation for the use of my private property, which I, at that time, looked at my name, my all-capital letters name, and I don't want to get into the, all the teachings about that stuff. But I, I looked at that as my private property. It was, uh, you know, and I trademarked it, and I charged for the use of that property, and that turned into a nightmare. So if you're into the UCC and any kind of stuff like that, I'd recommend you run and stay away from it. And uh, but I, I spent 16 months in jail. Um, when if you do end up reading the article, you'll see that I was found guilty on all counts, which accumulated to 23 years in prison. And fortunately for me, the judge in the case, uh, James Duggan, the man acting as judge, was uh, had, had enough forethought to, to see that you know, I didn't have a criminal background, and this was all based on a divorce case, and uh, giving me 23 years in the prison system was ridiculous. Uh, I never said one word in my defense. I never put up any kind of a defense. The last thing I said in that case uh, was the at, at the um, at the uh, when they when they read the indictments to me, they they charged me with this stuff and asked me how I pled, and I told them I wasn't going to plead because the court had no jurisdiction, and the chief judge of the superior courts in, in New Hampshire at the time, uh, Robert Lynn, who's now a chief, uh, who's now a Supreme Court judge. He uh, screamed at me and told me, this court's got jurisdiction, and he got all upset. And that was it. That was the last time I spoke in that case. So obviously I was found guilty, or, or at least my, my legal person was found guilty. And uh, so I, I went through that. I had some probation for a while, and I knew that if I studied law, I would probably act on what I learned. So I decided to not study a whole lot. I, I kept in touch with things that were going on. I looked into things like the Illuminati and the Pope and the, the Queen and, you know, the, the stuff, the, the, the uh, conspiracy theories and 9-11, and I entertained myself with that kind of thought, but I didn't pursue anything about my own case, my own, um, I mean, I pursued uh, visits with my kids uh, and continued to try to see my, my oldest daughters right up until about 2012, but, and that never got anywhere, so, uh, but that was it. I, I, I didn't want to get into trouble again. I didn't want to get overly ambitious in, in trying to pursue that. And, and I thought, you know, if my kids want to see me, they need to act. 
because I've done everything I can, and I did too much. So I backed off right up until 2010 when I was done with probation. And uh, at that point, I started studying again. I, uh, I, I started getting into the New Hampshire Constitution, constitutional redress, and it was in 2010 that the Republican Party uh, won the supermajority in New Hampshire. So they became um, the they were I mean three quarters of the of the House was Republicans, and so they controlled the House. They elected as a Speaker of the House uh, William O'Brien, who was an attorney, and there was a lot of members of, of the House that year that had been involved in constitutional redress because it existed as part of the Constitution of Article 32, actually 31 and 32, and they were trying to get that back into the system, into the legislature. So the state reps that were working on that went ahead and got things rolling. They really emphasized that as part of their stand to, you know, that they, their platform and they won, and they got into office, and they resurrected uh, constitutional redress. Unfortunately, the Speaker of the House was an attorney, and uh, he made sure that it never got any traction. He put restrictions on it to make it something that it was not. It became a committee thing. It was, it was the uh, Article 31 says that the legislature shall assemble for the redress of public grievances and for making such laws as the public good may require. And it, it, the legislature shall assemble, not the House, not some committee, the, the legislature. And I started doing research on uh, constitutional redress in New Hampshire. I went to the archives. I pulled up the old parchments from 1706 and 1715 and all the way through. I just read a whole, whole bunch of them. I was able to track down how a lot of them ended up and how redress was given. And in doing so, I became very familiar with the entire process before New Hampshire became a state and afterwards and, and the transition and how they had carried the redress process into statehood as, they, as the state emerged from the province and they had solidified that idea. And there was a redress that went on. I know Colorado's got a provision for it. I'm pretty sure Minnesota has. Uh, I'm in Minnesota now. And I started uh, NewHampshireRedress.org, which is a website to promote redress. I, I wrote legislative petitions, which were sponsored by uh, some, some of the New Hampshire state reps. There was, a, there was probably uh, at least a half dozen, uh, probably more, that signed on and sponsored various petitions and co-sponsored various petitions that I wrote. And uh, that's where I thought I was going to make some changes to the system, where I could affect uh, where my time would be effectively used to promote justice. And so uh, I was looking to, to, to make changes because, I, you know, what happened to me and my family should not happen to other people. So in order to do that, redress was the way I saw that it was going to happen. I had, uh, at that time, I think you and I and Terry and Ed, it was, it was towards the end of that, Oh no! Actually, it was right right at that same time that you it, uh, we all got together and started the All States Organic Initiative based on the uh, the essay that Stephen had wrote, and so I, I created a website for that, 
but it, it never seemed to, to take off. It seemed to be too complicated, and I continued doing redress at the same time, and I still believe in the All-States Organic Initiative. I, I, I think that's a very viable thing, and I, in order for that to take off, I believe people have to get a really good grasp on common law, and after that is being taught on a regular basis uh, over and over again, for instance, tonight, Carl, the, the man that Carl Lentz, the man who taught me the stuff that I know about common law, is on Angela Stock's call. So he's doing her show. I'm doing this show. So there's two of us promoting this information tonight. And I think once this becomes uh, very well known and, and how to use it and how to uh, hold another man accountable for any harm done to you, uh, that we'll be able to move forward with the All States Organic Initiative, but uh, you know, from from there, I ended up. Uh, Ed and I uh, met uh, Dave Narby from uh, New York, and we started working together on doing presentations in New Hampshire on uh, New Hampshire redress, and we wanted to make it a political issue for the next campaign, the the, the next elections, and. It just uh, it wasn't taken off, but we were doing it. We were promoting it. We were getting the word out there, and uh, that's when I ran into Carl uh, Carl's material and realized he had the answer. Instead of trying to change the government, which I believe the government is is rather well set up, and you know the conclusion I've come to after listening to Carl and looking at the problem from his perspective is that uh, the government is a thing. And it's the man or the woman in an office which decides uh, how things are going to turn out, which is the problem. You know, they have a position. They are a person. So they hold a position created by the legislature. And that position has some very uh, precise things, uh, obligations and duties for them to perform. And when they act contrary to that, they cause harm to man. Sometimes they cause harm to man even when they act according to their duties. And so they're supposed to, as a man or a woman in society, they're supposed to know when they're crossing a line, when they're causing a man harm. And in that instance where a man or a woman has incurred a loss of some sort, uh, they have a right to redress. They have a right to be compensated for that loss. And I believe that's where the rubber meets the road. And when all of us learn how to hold another man accountable, for um, for you know the loss of, of, of property or the loss of time or an injury or some kind of uh, of harm that the what we call the government you know is going to change because it's it's individual man and woman that are in those offices that are causing harm and when when one man I, I give uh, these examples when I do my my show that uh, let's say. Uh, Bob, the building inspector, comes in and says, your, uh, your, your, your exit sign is too small. It doesn't comply with the new regulations. I'm shutting you down until you get a new sign. All right? So he, he, he forces you to shut down your business at 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, and typically you have $2,800 that comes in you know, from 4 to 8 that day or whatever, your, whatever that number is. And so he just caused you a loss of $2,800. He could have told you to get that sign fixed or to get that up to date by, you know, by Friday or by next Wednesday or whatever. 
you know, but to come in and just do it that way, he's causing you harm. He's causing harm to the business, which is a person, but that business is, is also reflecting on the man who's relying on that. So that gives you a cause of action. And if you bring that forward and you hold Bob accountable for that $2,800, not the building inspector who is immune, but Bob, and you uh, bring a claim against Bob into a court of record, a common law court, and Bob loses, you're not suing him for $2 million. You're talking about, you know, 1800 1500 It might only be uh, $230. But when he goes home after losing in that case and says, honey, I need you to write a check for $780 because I lost in court today, uh, whatever that amount is, his wife's going to give him a dirty look and say, what the heck was that all about? And he's going to have to explain himself and she's going to let him know, you know, if you do this again, we're not going to be able to go, you know, to, we're not going to be able to take the kids to Disney World. And I believe that's how you affect the change in government, by holding a single man or woman accountable for their own actions, not by going down to Washington, D.C. and demonstrating on a Labor Day weekend when everybody's gone home anyway, you know. So uh, that's what I've been doing. This, you know, that's, that's my life so far. I'm sure there's bunch of stuff I forgot, but <laughs> uh, take it from there, Terry. Well, I've I've said before when you were on here that it was uh, quite impressive to me uh, how quickly you picked up on this stuff. You you dove into this like no one I've ever seen dive into hardly anything before, uh, and and you you know you literally lived with Carl Lentz practically for for a number of months and, and helped him out, drove him around, did anything you could just to stay in his presence, became friends with him, and, um, you know, really picked up uh, where a lot of people, and th- this is, it, Carl tries to say that this is simple stuff. And, you know, it, it takes it takes courage to act like a man and to stand up to the system and not tolerate the legalese, not tolerate their, their counterfeit jurisdiction, but it also takes uh, an incredible amount of dedication uh, to spend the amount of time and, and, and study that you did in a very few months, really, um, which now has been, what, a year and a half about, a little over a year and a half since yep. you really started on this, um, this venture. I do well, want to I... let everyone know, I want to, let, want to let the listeners know that if you have a question tonight, and we are inviting you. I mean, we will be disappointed if we don't have a number of callers call in tonight and ask, you know, some tough questions. Gus is prepared to answer those questions tonight. He likes those questions. So in order for you to get a live mic, you have to hit a one on your phone, and it raises your hand, and I will see that, and um, I will get you in. Um Let's see who we've got. Uh, we've got our hand raised right now, but I don't want to uh, quite go to opening the phone lines yet. Um, so we, we, we're inviting those questions. Um, but Gus, you tell a little bit about you know how you came up to this point. Uh, I'd really like for you to share about your case uh, that you had in the, this year, if you if you don't mind talking about that. Because it is a perfect example of how you very simply uh, conduct yourself as a man and get yourself discharged from, from something. Um, All right. 
So I'm going to shut up for a second. Okay. Um, like I said, I, I was doing the redress stuff, and I ran into Carl's message on YouTube. Somebody sent me a link, and it was, it was Monday or Tuesday uh, before Christmas in 2013. So I, I listened to that, and I thought, wow, he's got it. He's got what I've been looking for. And it was so it was self-evident. It was, it was just right there. And so I continued to do the redress. I started listening to Carl. And in, in early April, I think it was on uh, April 6th or 7th, it was, uh, it was at the end of Sunday night going into Monday morning. Uh, I got a phone call that said Carl is in New Brunswick and he needs a ride back to the Boston area to help the lady whose kid got taken from Children's Hospital. Uh, with, you know, you're over in Boston. Would you like to give him a ride? And I said, sure. So I uh, got up in the morning and uh, called Carl, and, and I had no message. He had left me a message. He left me a message about an hour later that said, uh, you know, Mark says you're interested in picking me up. Let me know if you're still interested. I took that as a sign that he still needed a ride, so I rented a car, and I was in New Brunswick before I ever talked to him again. And, uh, you know, we talked, and I said, hey, I'm in New Brunswick. You, you know, if you still need a ride, I didn't know if he was already in Boston or not, but I wasn't taking no chances. And, yes, I did uh, hang out with him. for the. We did a TV show the next day with a friend of mine, Mark, Matt Connaughton, in uh, New Hampshire. And then uh, from from there, Carl went to Boston. We met with some, some Portuguese people in the Boston area. That lady that he was supposed to meet, never uh, she never showed up. She had decided to go with the attorneys. So uh, a few days later, I ended up going to Carl's house. I spent about a week there uh, working on some stuff with him. And then I came home for the rest of the month of April. And then I went down for the month of May and most of the month of July. I spent June at home. And I spent a lot of time with Carl. I still do. Uh, his sister and I still talk uh, pretty often during, you know, during, uh, the, during the month. I mean, probably two or three times a week we text each other. And I met his mom. I've met his kids. And Carl, an excellent teacher. He's, he, he uses uh, analogies, parables to teach, and, and he gives stories. And you ask him a direct question, and he won't answer you. He'll make you think and think and think because that's what he does. And he does it really well. And he, he taught me how to do that, how to think. And in, in that process, I've learned how to create analogies and so on to help people think. And so uh, I started teaching last summer. I, I, do, I do a show called uh, Word Nerds. It's on TalkShoe, ID number 134084. And I do that on Wednesday nights. At, uh, well, I used to do it at 9 p.m. I've been doing it lately at 5 p.m. so that people in England who are five hours ahead of us can tune in. Uh, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off and, and get back to that. But uh, I, I started doing that talk show last summer and, uh, you know, in 2014. And what I do there is I answer questions. People call in and talk about, you know, their property taxes or a traffic ticket or whatever's on their mind. And I just take it on the fly, whatever's going on, and I answer questions. So, the thing, what I've come to realize in doing that is, um, is that people, I've come to realize people don't understand the fundamentals of the government that currently exists here on the land we call the United States of America. 
and the purpose for that government. So if so, I've been teaching the, the basics over and over again over the last three or four months because people just are not tuning in. And the ones that do end up, you know, uh, downloading the archives of the show, they don't stay on because they've got things to do. So it tends to be new people. So I'm constantly repeating this. And what it is is the, the people that were here in the 1770s, they were tired of the king. They were tired of what was going on. They got together, and they wrote something called the Declaration of Independence of the 13 United States of America. Of the, the, uh, I don't remember what the exact proper title is, but they wrote the Declaration of Independence. And in there, they said that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And it goes on to talk about the consent of the governed and so on. But to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That is the purpose of government. Now, rights is a subset of property. Okay? I can comb my hair to the left or I can comb my hair to the right. The ability to do so, the right that I have to do so, is my property, just like any other property it's, you know, it, it's exclusively to my use. So the pursuit of happiness, um, life, liberty, these are, these are property. And these rights that you have in that property are what the, is the purpose of government, is to secure those rights. So uh, what I teach people is that when you go to court as a man, not as a person, the person is somebody with an obligation or a duty created for them by the legislature. So as a man, when you go to court, you are the you are there to you got an invitation okay so somebody sent you an invitation and said hey come to court you know, we you know we we want your presence because we have some things to discuss well the only reason for you to be in court is to answer for something you may have done wrong i mean the, the court is all about a controversy so there, there has to be a controversy if there's going to be a court. And if you're a person, for instance, a driver of a motor vehicle is a person. If you're a building inspector, you're a person. If you're a fireman, you're a person. But uh, if you're a man without title, then you're there without your person. You're, you're not there in any official capacity, which is regulated by the legislature. So as a man in court, you are there, and the purpose of the government, okay, which is you know the, the person acting as prosecutor, the man acting as prosecutor, and the man acting as judge, and the woman acting as clerk, and, and whatnot, all these persons are all part of government. And all these persons have one specific thing that undermines, not undermines, that uh, the, the, the foundation of everything that they do is is this you know, Declaration of Independence, which is to secure rights and to protect property of man. That's it. So if I'm the only man in court, then you must all be here for me because, you know, there's no other man. You know, you, you, you all exist to secure rights and to protect property of man. I'm the only man here. So, you know, why did you call me? Why am I here? And the only reason for me to be there in, this, you know, in court is to face 
face up to some kind of a controversy. So my question is, you know, I'm not bringing a controversy into the court. So if I'm here by invitation, who is the man on whose behalf to bring me into court to, to answer for something? Put that man on the stand. I want to meet my accuser. I have the right to face my accuser and to answer for myself to whatever it is I'm accused of. So put that man on the stand and let's get the show on the road. And uh, as a person, you don't have that right. You only have that right as a man. As a person, you're going into an administrative hearing where they're going to administer the statutes, the codes, which are not written for man. They're written in, in a foreign language called legalese. Legalese is a language of legal documents. That is understood by attorneys and only attorneys. If you have not gone to school to study legalese, then you have no idea what that language is. When you look at the statutes, you don't know what that means. You might, you might say to yourself, that looks like English to me, but it's not. It's literally legalese. If you go to Webster's Dictionary and you look up the word legalese, you'll see that it's a foreign language. It's, a, it's the language of legal documents used by other people who, who are, it doesn't say that it's a form of English. It's, it's literally another language like Cantonese or Chinese. And you, know, you cannot be held accountable to uh, laws that are written in a foreign language. So if they're holding you hostage to this, to this statute, to this code, to this ordinance, and saying that you have, you, know, you have some kind of an obligation to that, well, maybe as a person you have an obligation to that statute, but as a man who does not understand legalese, all right, you're an idiot, you're a, you're a private man. But if you look up the word idiot, it means a private man, somebody who does not have um, experience in a particular area. For instance, I'm an, I'm an idiot to dentistry or to brain surgery. So in, in the same way, I'm an idiot to legalese, and the customs of the legal society. The customs, the word customs means the, the way we commonly do things, okay? The, uh, the customs of a society, the customs of the tribe, or whoever, you know, whatever society there is, the way they typically do things, their customs are, are the, uh, the common law of that area. So, for instance, if you go to, uh, if you go to uscourts.gov, you'll see in the summary section, uh, summary, glossary, in the glossary section, that they have the term common law. And if you look at what they define common law is, as it says that it is the, uh, the decisions of the Supreme Court and case law developed through the federal court. But this is what they call common law because it's common to them. Now, when I say I don't understand the customs of the legal society, what I'm saying is I don't understand the rules of evidence. I don't understand the hearsay rule and all these things that are written in legalese because it's got nothing to do with me. It's not part of my society. So uh, back in 2004, because I was fighting so hard to see my kids using the UCC stuff, they called me a paper terrorist. Uh, I was charged with improper influence. Yeah, improper influence. That was a felony. And then obstruction of government administration, I think that was a misdemeanor. 
it was witness tampering because one of the things I did was uh, on a was against a guardian at Lightham. I put a lien on her house because she wouldn't get out of the case and let me be. And uh, so that they considered that to be witness tampering. I think those are the three. And there was multiple. Uh, there was only one witness tampering, and that was that one. I think there was two two improper influence. I think both of those were felonies and the other ones were misdemeanors. So I had multiple felonies and I didn't defend myself. So I was found guilty of all of them. And in May, I was uh, traveling down the road. I was on my way home from going for a bite to eat. And uh, I was with a guy who I was giving a hand to. He, he needed a ride someplace to go pick up his van and he didn't have his driver's license. So he borrowed somebody else's car came over to my house and said, hey, would you come with me to go pick up my van? So we went to pick up his van at 11 o'clock at night, and it wasn't there. So uh, he said, well, I'm going to run in. And his roommate had taken the van. He was hoping the van would be there so he could get the van back. He wasn't getting along with his roommate. So uh, I, I went with him to get the van. It wasn't there. So he came back out, and uh, he said – he said he was going to go into his, his condo and secure some stuff, you know, some gold, some silver, some stuff that he had, you know, firearms, whatever. And, you know, I've known this guy for three or four years. He's always had a 45 on his hip. So for me to see him with a 45 is no big deal. That night I did not see him with the 45, but obviously he had it on him because when we got pulled over, he threw it behind my seat. So I got pulled over because I failed to use the direction uh, when making a left-hand turn. So uh, so he, yeah, I, I don't know how they done that back there, but obviously he had it with him. And so because I was driving the car, I was charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm. And the uh, detectives explained it to me later that it was uh, within my reach. So anything within your reach inside of a motor vehicle is considered to be in your constructive possession. So they charged me with that, and uh, they wanted to know if I wanted to talk. And I said, sure, let's talk. So uh, we went up into this little room, me and two detectives, and I told them that I would not talk to them as detectives or as police officers, that I would speak to them only man-to-man. And they agreed. And then uh, after they agreed, I said, are you recording this? And they said, yes. And I said, I, do you need my consent to record? They said, yes. I said, shut, shut it off. I don't consent to a recording. I'm speaking with you man to man. You've agreed to that. Uh, that's it. It's good enough. You know, anything else from here forward is going to be just between us. So they said, okay. And then they started asking me questions. I explained to them how I was using somebody else's property to go about my day that it was not a motor vehicle. I didn't have a driver's license at that time. I wasn't operating under a license. That all this constructive possession stuff um, didn't apply to me. But, you know, that, that was a statutory argument uh, because really, you know, this was just, you know, two guys acting as detectives doing their job. And I asked them right at the beginning, who is the man or the woman that claims I, I do harm? Who says that I've caused them some kind of a loss? You know, who's incurred a loss? Uh, is there anyone with an injury that's claiming that I caused that injury? And they said, no, there's no, there's, there's nobody claiming anything. 
So the next morning I went to a bail hearing and they were talking about my bail and the uh, man acting as judge asked me if I had any questions about the, uh, the bail conditions. And I told him that, uh, you know, man to man, I want to let you know that Scott, the guy who is acting as a detective, uh, told me there is no man making any claim against me regarding any kind of an injury or a loss or, uh, or harm or anything, and I require the case discharged. And so he said, um, you know, he, actually, I don't think he said anything. He just uh, wrote something on the piece of paper, handed it to the, the, the lady that was there, and she walked me out back. She said, sign here, and you know, these are your bail conditions. So my signature was, I don't understand. That was my signature. So uh, later on, when I when I posted bail, they wanted me to re-sign my name, uh, saying that you know if you don't agree to these bail conditions, I can't let you out. So I said, so you want me to sign something that says I agree to this? And so uh, he says yes. And so I uh, I wrote I agree. I don't understand to these bail conditions, <laughs> and I signed it again, <laughs> and he let me go. So that was pretty cool. Uh, when I got out of there, when I got out of jail, when I, when I posted bail, I, I wrote immediately to uh, Dennis Hogan, who's the county prosecutor in Manchester, New Hampshire, for the uh, Hillsborough County, to let him know that Megan, the lady who had pulled me over, had interfered with my right to be let alone, and that David Mara, the chief of police, uh, had had he was bearing false witness against me by saying that I knowingly had possession of a firearm. That guy couldn't pick me out of a lineup. You know, he, he had no idea what I looked like. How does he even know what I know? So he was bearing false witness, and as the county prosecutor with an oath of office, I expected him to prosecute these two people for interfering with my rights, and uh, and I and that was it. So I gave him notice of that. And I, I, I called, I left a message on his machine letting him know that, uh, you know, there was a case going on that I, a man, required his assistance to, to resolve this issue. And uh, he called me back about a week later and left me a message. But by then, uh, I had already gone to the probable cause hearing. So uh, I, I wrote some other stuff to, uh, to Dennis. It was all basic, basically along that same path. It was it was very minor. I didn't really do a lot of writing. I had already told him what I wanted to say. And then I put notices into the court uh, regarding this case, which is in district court, that I had uh, that I was an idiot in legalese and to the customs of the legal society. In other words, I have no idea what's going on. I don't speak your language. I don't understand your customs. And, uh, and that's it. You know, and I, I did a... Uh, I uh, compared my beliefs to, well, not compared, I, I gave the definitions of uh, idiot from etymology online and from uh, legalese and, and customs. I gave certain definitions so that they would not misinterpret me, but I let them know that I, a man, declare I am an idiot before the court. So I let them know right away, I'm a man, I'm not a person, and I'm not dealing with you on that level. I put another notice into the court that Margaret, the lady who acted, who was acting as an officer, uh, did interfere with my right to be let alone. 
And that was it. That was the whole notice. I put another notice saying that the man who, uh, the, the man David Mara, who was acting as uh, police chief, did bear false witness against me and that I did require him to testify uh, so that I can answer for myself, that I, I required my accuser to appear. So that was a separate notice. And there was a few others like that. Um, so that, I put those in about an hour before court. And when the uh, when the hearing began, the the judge walked in. That was the first one to be heard. It was 8.30 in the morning. And uh, they announced the case. I went up and they started, you know, with their regular routine. And I cut in saying, hey, I'm a man. I don't know what's going on here, but I was hoping to have a little chat with you about, you know, what's going on. And, and you can hear that whole recording on uh, on YouTube, on my YouTube channel with Gus Breton. I mean, uh, that's my Skype, Gus Breton. The YouTube channel is just Gus Breton. So you can listen to that recording there. But uh, essentially what happened is, is they had the, the man who was the backup officer, I think his name was Jerry, uh, he testified regarding the incident that he found the 45 with one in the uh, chamber, a full clip uh, behind my seat in a position like it had just been put there because it was standing, uh, I think he said it was pointing down. So the, the way that it was laid there showed that it had just been recently put there. And uh, so he testified to whatever you know, he testified about. Those are his beliefs. I'm not going to question him. Uh, besides, I don't understand what he's talking about. He is a person. He's a, he's a police officer, a person who is doing his job and using the language of, legal, of legalese to discuss these things in court. I, I'm a man, and I only talk in English. So I, what questions do I have for the officer? None. You know, whatever he said, he believes, and that's it. It's got nothing to do with me. Is, you know, where's the man that says I do harm? Where's the man that, that's, that's here to make a claim? And, again, I get back to the basics. The basics is the entire structure of government from the very top all the way down and, and beyond. Okay? If you look at uh, Tylenol, Kleenex, you know, these corporations, Home Depot, for instance, all these corporations are um, they're chartered or registered through the Secretary of State's office of some state. So their purpose as an extension of government is also, Home Depot's purpose ultimately is to secure the rights of man, period, because that's, they exist as part of a government which has that uh, underlying theme and, and purpose. And, you know, when they wrote the Constitution, they just took the next step forward. And, you know, in order to form a more perfect union to ensure justice and domestic tranquility and so on. So they repeated themselves when they wrote the Constitution, you know, that that, that was the purpose of government. So all these, all these corporations are nothing but persons which exist within the government, which also, uh, not also, but which um, as a whole, you know, Tylenol, Home Depot, Secretary of State's office, the legislature, they are all one big person, and their job is to secure rights and protect the property of man. And that's it. There, there, there is no other purpose there. And uh, when I was in court, that's what I wanted to know. Who's the man that claims I do wrong? Because you're all here. You're all getting paid. I'm the only man here, you know, showing up for this, for this hearing. 
where's the man that says I do wrong? Where's the man that, you know, you're acting on somebody's behalf. And, you know, I'm not aware. I didn't, I didn't call this meeting together. So where is that man? And uh, if you listen to the hearing, uh, I think it's nine minutes long. The man acting as judge, William, uh, asked me if I had anything to say. Uh, I asked him questions. He kept telling me he couldn't give me any legal advice, uh, which is good because I didn't want any anyway. And uh, he found that there was probable cause to send this over to the county prosecutor's office at the Superior Court for indictment by the grand jury, to, to have him bring it to the grand jury. So I wrote a letter again to Dennis letting him know that if he, uh, that I required him to let me know when that hearing was and that I, I expected to be present to be fully heard before the grand jury and that I plan on prosecuting the chief of police and the lady uh, who interfered with my right to be let alone if he didn't do it. So, he, you know, this was not going to go down very smoothly. Uh, so the prosecutor's office, uh, they, they got the, I think they got it on a Thursday, and they now processed it on a Monday, and later that week the chief of police resigned. Now, I don't know if that was a coincidence or not. Um, he, he moved on. He left his office. He, he, was, he, he left. He bailed out. So uh, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, with this whole thing. It, it's, it's been no process. I've got testimony now from uh, lots of people that are very familiar with, um, well, actually I can't give the rest of the story because they have the right to bring it back up and I'm not going to let anybody know what, what my defense is going to be if they do. But, you know, they would be moving a false claim. If there's no man in court moving a claim against me, then uh, whoever's prosecuting the case is committing barratry. Barry, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. Committing what? Barratry, B-A-R-R-A-T-R-Y. It's called uh, ambulance chasing. It's, it's making false claims. See, in order for a claim to be legit, there has to be a man. If I'm a man, for a claim to be legit, there has to be another man making that claim. Otherwise, it's only a complaint, and a, and a complaint uh, has no weight. It bears nothing. There's, it's just somebody complaining about whatever the issue is. We've got a hand up. you want to take your call? Oh, yeah. Area code 434, I believe that's Jim, is it not? Yeah, hi, Terry. Hi, Gus. Um, hey, Jim. I remember our dinner out in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, yeah. That. Hey, um, I have a question. Now, um, my property, okay, I pay property taxes of $500 a year and two installments, approximately 250 apiece. I have 2.6 acres. Now, uh, the woman next to me has... 1.8 acres. She pays $50. Now, I only have 0.8 acres more than her, and I paid 500 So, it, it is obvious um, way out of whack. 
and I've I've been paying this all along, and I know she's been paying a lot less. Okay. On top of this, when I bought the property, okay, uh, they told me uh, like I can go from my property right out to Route 2 or Route 4 where I'm located. But they're saying, well, no, you don't have a right of way to go to that. You have to put in a road like, uh, I think it's something like. Uh, yeah, they want you to apply for a curb cut. Yeah, right. The, the bottom line is, uh, it, it, I think it's 410 feet, mm-hmm. okay, to put in the road. And my question is, that's going to cause me a loss because uh, they, first of all, they've stolen my right away to access to where I can go straight from my property right to um, the main road. Now, as I understand it, and uh, I think this is true, uh, well, I know it's all roads, um, uh, we own them, period. Uh, court case after court case shows this. So the Department of Transportation only has the authority to maintain the roads. They don't have the authority to come in and tell me, oh, well, you you don't have a right-of-way to that road or your right-of-way is 410 feet from an alternate road or whatever. So how do I address this? Okay. First of all, on on your property issue, on the property tax issue, if – uh, if your lot was empty, whatever you would be paying for property taxes on that lot uh, would be the proper amount. Any building that you put on there, that that's your that's your that's your property. Okay, that's no different than putting a car. If you put a Mercedes Benz on that property, that does not increase the, the value of the property any more than if you put a house on it. Because if you have the money to remove the house. Which you know, if the house is yours and you remove it, how does the you know the value of the property would go down? So the fact that something is built into the land, uh, which is removable if you have enough money, means that it's not worth that. You know, the, the property is still the property; it's still the same dirt. You know, you dug a hole and you spread the dirt evenly. You pull the house out of the ground and you you skim the top of the dirt and you fill that hole. You're back to normal. All right, so so that property. The, the land is not worth more simply because you parked a house on it or because you parked a, you know, a boat in the backyard. All right? it, it's worth the same as if it was, it was vacant. So that's one degree that you can work with on the property tax issue. And there's a lot more in there. We have Skype rooms where you can actually uh, talk with people that deal with the property tax issue and who I, I don't follow along, so I don't know uh, where they're at and what other kinds of strategies they have to iron this out. But, uh, you know, essentially, uh, the whole thing comes down to, if this land is my property, then who are you to tell me what to do with it? What authority do you have? And, you know, you're, you're talking about the curb cut and the leg, the the, uh, the criteria for getting a driveway or, or an entranceway. And that is all written in legalese. That's all statutory. And if you look at uh, a really good example is Article 38 of the New Hampshire Constitution. It says that we, the people, have a right to 
uh, an exact and constant adherence to the fundamental principles of the Constitution in the formation and execution of the laws necessary for the good administration of government. It doesn't say necessary for the good administration of a man, right? The laws, the statutes, if you look at Article 38, and, and it says more than that, that's a paraphrase, but if you look at it, it's very clear that the legislature has the authority to make laws for the good administration of government. And that's why they can say that your toilet can only flush 1.2 gallons. Your toilet, meaning a person's toilet, not a man's toilet. If you're in your home and your toilet flushes 1.6 gallons, there's nothing they can do about that because they don't have authority to make laws or statutes or codes which affect a man because, first of all, they're written in a foreign language called legalese. Secondly, they've never been given authority to regulate a man. A man is free to do as he wishes with his property, and you're never going to get anybody who's going to produce a law that says it applies to Bob or Frank or Susie. It's always a, well, it's always a law that applies to a person. And those are the fundamental basics that you need to work at and not try to interpret their rules. You're, you're telling me that their statutes say this, their codes say that. Uh, unless you've got a law degree, you have no idea what that language is, and you're not subject to it. Unless you really want to be. If you want to understand their language and you want to study it and you want to be considered a pro se litigant or a defendant or a plaintiff, um, once you study those words, you're going to realize you know you you simply want to be a man. You want to be let alone to do as you wish with your property. And it, it takes a long time for for most. I mean, it, it, it took the reason you know Terry was saying that I went I learned this stuff really fast. Well, when I picked up Carl in Nova Scotia at uh, St. John's, it was two or three hours to the border, and before we got to the the Canadian-United uh, States border, I told Carl, I can't believe all the stuff I'm going to have to forget. I mean, it's just it, it just, it dawned on me how much misinformation I had. Um, and it, it's, not, it's not that it was misinformation. It was more um, information that was going to become useless if I was going to pursue this avenue. And, and that's really what it is. Most of the people I deal with are people that have studied a lot of stuff. They've got a great capacity to learn, but they've learned so much that convincing them that they cannot blend everything they've learned in the past with common law, is it's, it's, it's a difficult task because nobody wants to believe they've wasted that much time. So you're either going to be a man or you're going to be a person. And if you've got all that experience and all that knowledge as a person and you want to use that, there's definitely a place in the world for you to, to, to use that. You can use it in statutory courts. You know, and, and there's nothing wrong with you using that. And there's a lot of people who, who can guide uh, other people to do that, attorneys, that's what they do. But I don't do that kind of work. But my focus is strictly on the fact that a man has a right to his property and to be let alone to do as he wishes with his property, end of story. And if no man is making a claim that you have caused harm, then the government shouldn't even be talking to you. They've got no business in your affairs whatsoever. So okay, okay, Gus. Uh, um, first of all, the issue is that um, the person who pays fifty dollars for a year's worth of tax only has 0.8 acres less than me, and I'm paying five hundred. So I understand. Uh, I understand that. Huh? 
Okay. Why? Okay. Why is she paying? Why is she paying fifty dollars a year? Well, she went back and she told him, "Well, I don't have access to um, uh, to the road, and I have no way of getting to the road." Now, according to the plot plan, she has like fifty feet from the road onto my property up to her property. So, if she wanted to put in a road. She has a right-of-way on my property. So that means that they took 50 feet of my property from the road that parallels the road where she could put in a road down to access. And her okay, claim but, to them was, but, oh, I don't have access. That, that's fine. But, Jim, you, what, you, what you're talking about is things that are being regulated by a government institution, all right? The building inspector, the planning board, the county assessor, you know, the town assessor. Yeah, you're dealing with these persons. You're not dealing with man, all right? So you need to learn how to deal on a man-to-man level. And when you do that, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be writing to the town assessor, and your first letter is going to be along the lines of, Dear Bob, uh, are you the man that has authority to, to rewrite my assessment? Are you the man that has whatever? You're going to, you're going to question him. On, on a man-to-man level, you're going to ask them, are you the man, are you the woman that has authority to do X, Y, Z? And they're going to write back and say, yes, I can help you with that. So when they write back to you, what they just did is they admitted that they're a man. And now everything you do from that point on is going to be man-to-man. And you can hold a man accountable for causing you loss. You can hold a man accountable for causing you injury. But you cannot hold the town assessor. Okay, that's a person protected by the legislature. If you look at the definition of a doctor, it never says that it's the guy who leaves a sponge and, 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 you know, and tools in your abdomen after surgery. It never says that they do dumb things like that. Okay, only a man does those kinds of things. A doctor is perfect. So you'll never get any, you'll never gain ground. You'll never get traction going and dealing with a person. So the very basic thing that you have to start with is dealing with a man on that man-to-man level so that uh, you're, you're not facing the immunity thing later. And when, when, you know, after a few letters, you can write to Bob who, or Susie or whoever you're dealing with and let them know that your assessment is causing me harm. This is what I believe, and I require you to make the necessary adjustments to uh, – to reduce the, you know, to, to reduce this bill, and you know, and you could take it further. You can ask them. You can require of them to send you an actual bill, you know, something that they're willing to verify in open court. And and there's no nobody's going to come into court under the penalties of perjury and verify to the penny any bill. I don't care what it is. Nobody's going to put their their life on the line to verify a bill. So there's so many ways of handling. Um, these issues, but the, the first thing you've got to understand is that the government exists to secure rights and to protect property of man, period. And so you have to start talking to them on a man-to-man level that their job, the, the position they hold as a person in government is for that purpose. It's to serve me, the man. And once you get that in your head and you start communicating with them on that level, uh, you're gonna you're gonna cover a lot of ground very quickly. Okay. With that being said, um, now I got another issue. Uh, now I the the property up 
to about two months ago had nothing on it. And I put a little camp on it, 16 by 16. Um, um, you could say camp. That's exactly what it is. Now, I get a call from the person who is the code enforcer, okay? As they say here in Maine, he's a code enforcer. And he says, oh, I got a complaint that you were building on this property. Now, the code enforcer uh, enforces what the UCC, which is Uniform Commercial Code. And I'm not engaged in commerce. I'm engaged in um, doing what, like you said, uh, doing my right to do with my property as I feel fit without interference from anybody. So that's going to be an issue, too. Can you okay, but see, it, yeah, you, you just told me that the code enforcer works with the UCC. Right? The code enforcer is a person. All right? He's not a man or a woman. And somehow, without a law degree, without knowing the language of legalese, you have figured out that he's using the UCC. And you need to get away from that. Okay, you you don't know what he's doing. You you don't need to admit that you understand any of it because it's in a foreign language. When you talk about a camp on that property, all right, on that land, uh, a camp is regulated by statutes. It's a statutory word. All right, it's somewhere in there legalese. There's the word camp. So when you use the word camp, you're admitting that you fall under their jurisdiction. On the other hand. If you say that I, I have placed my property on this land, and what, what right have you to tell me how, when, where, or what to do with my property? You know, you ask the, the man who is acting as code enforcer to give you the law, which allows him to tell another man what to do with his property. Okay, when you get into those kinds of conversations, now you're, and it's not going to be a conversation, right? You never, ever, ever speak with your mouth with a person because they can only hear legalese, all right? So when you speak, when, you, when you're communicating with a person, you're, you have to do it on a man-to-man level in writing, and you do it literally in writing. You use your hand and a piece of paper and a pen, and you hand-make your communication. You don't computer-generate your stuff. And in that communication process, when you're when you when you man make your letter, you, you know, handwritten letter, and you send it off to him, you're putting on the record evidence. Now, what I do is I write a letter, and then I make a photocopy of it, and I take a red sharpie and I write copy on it, and that's what I send to everybody. I have all the originals to every letter I've sent because I want the originals because when I send a letter to Bob, the code enforcer and he ignores me, I send him a copy the following week. and said, Bob, I wrote you a letter last week. Um, maybe you didn't get it. Maybe you got lost in the mail. Um, I hope you had a good weekend, and, and here's a copy of the letter that I sent you last week. I hope to hear from you soon. And, 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 and it needs to be in that tone. Bob's, Bob doesn't know that he's causing you harm or stress or anything else. He's just doing his job. So don't accuse the man. Just just write him a nice letter. Look, this, you know, I, I want to know if you're the guy who's got authority to handle this problem, you know, this issue, this debt, this whatever. And, and you're waiting for an answer to that. So the second letter would be along those lines. Hey, Bob, I wrote to you last week. I haven't heard from you. Here's another copy of that letter. And, 
you know, if Bob doesn't answer you, then you write to his boss, Frank, whoever that is. It might be the planning board, uh, you know, the, the uh, whoever's in charge of the planning board. It might be the town manager. But you're going to write to the next guy up and say, hey, Frank, I, I wrote to Bob last week, and the week before he hasn't answered me. I don't know if he's on vacation or not, so I thought I'd just write to you instead. Here's the letter I sent to Bob. Um, and, and, you know, could you let me know if he's the man that uh, has authority to deal with this? And, you know, you just keep pursuing this and writing letters by hand. And eventually these letters you know, are going to end up, if, if, you know, if you've got a real good case going on, uh, you're going to eventually make a common law claim, set up your own court, and whatever letters you write have to be so simple and so easy for the average juror to understand that when you give them the letter, they're going to think, well, that's ridiculous. He wrote this simple little letter to Bob, and Bob didn't answer him. That's, you know, that's rude. That's, that's, not, very, that's not being an honor. You know? And then he wrote him another letter, and Bob didn't answer. And then he wrote to Frank, and Frank didn't answer. And finally, he wrote to the Secretary of State. And look, the Secretary of State was nice enough to answer him and, and give him the letter, send him a response. So you know, when you write these letters, basically what you're doing is you're laying the groundwork for whatever – uh, claim you're going to put into court later. Okay, uh, Jim. Thank Jim. Thank thank you. I, I want to come back to to Gus on on something. Um, I'm going to leave your mic open, Jim, because I I want to come back to you in, in in a little bit if it's okay on your on your property. You know that I'm I'm a real estate broker, 40 years experience. I've got a little uh, little time in this sort of thing. Uh, so I'll come back to you in in just a minute, Gus. Uh, what I'm hearing in, in this conversation you had with Jim is a little bit of all the things that you talked about you had to unlearn. Um, it, even, though, even though the common law is, at, at, when, it's, when it's put into practice, is very simple, there's, a, there's an enormous of things that they try to trap a man into to make them act as a person. And all, everything that you've been talking about is deliberately avoiding those traps. Yep. Correct? That's correct. So so even though you're an idiot and you don't speak legalese, you got to know a lot about legalese so you can avoid being trapped into legalese. Is that not true? Um, it, it's not true in one sense because um, – you know, if you under so there's things that are self-evident, and people ask me, you know, uh, how, how, how do you be a man in court? How do you how do you be a man here? How do you handle this kind of stuff? And you know, it's along the same lines as this question you just asked me. And uh, and I remember my dad. Oh man, it must have been eight months ago. Said the same thing to me eight nine months ago. It was at the beginning of the year. He says, you know, you, I hear you talking to all these guys who come visit you, and, you know, I've, I've heard a couple of shows, and he says, you, you talk about this. He says, what the heck does that mean, being a man? You know, what are you talking about? I said, Dad, if you're out with Mom and somebody grabs her ass, are you going to be man enough to know what to do? He says, yeah. I said, okay, so you know how to be a man. And in court, it's the same thing. It, it's, it's that thing that says, who the heck are you to interfere with my life? All right? That's it. And that's what being a man is. So do you need to know the statutory side of things? No, you need to understand 
that you have the right to be let alone, and anybody who interferes with that better have a really good reason for it. And that's it. And that's where the, the whole, that's where the rubber meets the road. So whether it comes down to somebody telling you that you have, you know, you, you get that freezer in your backyard and it's ugly and you need to get rid of it to, you know, some other issue, they're telling you what to do with your property. And if you're a person, they have the right to do that. They have authority given to them by the legislature to do so, you know, those things. But if you're a man, that's your property. You know, I like having a freezer in my backyard. I use it to keep the meat in when I'm doing a barbecue. You know, whatever. It doesn't matter. I, I don't have to justify myself to anybody. And if I get a court order that says clean up my yard, get rid of that freezer, and you have a, an old RV back there, you know, that's got to go. You, you need to mow the lawn because, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're making everybody's property values are going down because your yard's a mess. You know, they give you these you know, an order along those lines. You're a man who has the right to be compensated for his time. Slavery went out the window in the 1860s. So as a man who has the right to be compensated for his time, you take that order and you start with the simplest thing and you mow a 10-foot square patch in your front yard and give them a bill for $60 for your time and say, I'll keep doing, I'll keep following your order as soon as I get compensated for this portion of it, which I've already completed. And they're going to realize that, you know, maybe they don't want you doing the rest of the stuff on that, you know, in that order. Because you're a man. You have to And, it, you know, you have to get your head into the fact that you're not a person. And all this Perry Mason crap that we've been taught in our lives, Miami Vice and all this stuff uh, that, you know, that, that, that the TV has pounded into our head. I gave up TV in 1987, which might be, one of the reasons why this made so much sense to me so quickly, because I, you know, I realized a long time ago, um, you know, when I was born again, basically, I realized there was a battle for my mind. I read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, and that really gave me a lot of insight as to the battle that was going on, and I tuned out. I shut the TV off. I never went back. I mean, I do watch movies now and then, but... Um, you know, I decided that I needed to control every word that went into my head, every idea, and you know, that's the same thing with common law. You've got to realize that you're a man. You're not a person. You're not one but God. God knows what's true. God knows what's right, and he knows your intent, and you're not subject to any other man. If you decide that you're not mowing the lawn, how is that a crime against God? It's not. All right, and, and he's the only one you have to answer to. So what's the problem? Um, I, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of people on the phone tonight. I'm surprised we don't have more people with their hands up. I know you you folks have got questions out there. Gus uh, came on tonight to answer these questions. So if you've got a question in your mind, please raise your hand, and we'll get you in here and uh, get your question answered. Um, It's it's just that it's like the concept of a saying the word children versus calling them property. Yeah. Um, how would would know or have the knowledge to not call them children because that makes them a person and not property. 
how 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 do people get past all these little traps without having at least a reasonable level of knowledge of of the legalese traps? Well, the uh, you know <laughs> you're a hundred percent right in in the way that you're putting the question out because that's exactly what happens. And you know, do you have to know legalese? You don't. But if you're going to avoid this stuff, then you need to understand the difference between English and legalese. And so I use etymology online. And, uh, you know, one of the problems is that if you look in the Bible, it talks about children. So it it looks like a common everyday word. But uh, the government was instituted to secure the rights and protect the property of man. So everything to me is property. Children is property, my campus property, my my Volvo is property, whatever it is, I don't care what you do. If you point at it, I'm going to take a picture of it and say, this is my property, mind your business. And uh, when it comes to this, you know, to, to knowing this stuff, the, the the legalese part of it, yeah, you're, you're, you're right, you know. And my approach is, it is that simple, but it's not, you're, you know, I don't know. It's really here. Here's a really good example. Right? You have a car, or you have a motor vehicle. You have what Jim said, a right of way, which is owned by all men, because uh, you know this used to be one big chunk of land, and when it was subdivided, you know somebody gave access to somebody else through a right of way, and eventually that was you know the next piece of property was subdivided, and on and on and on, and those right of ways in order to be more useful, became paved, and they were built up from the ground. They added gravel, and they made it higher land, which is now called highways, and you have driveways, and so on. So the ways of the state include driveways and highways, and those are all interconnected, and they consider that anything done on the highways, byways, roadways, right-of-ways, driveways is considered interstate commerce. And, you know, that, that's how they look at it. However, if I'm a man and I am using my property, not a motor vehicle, I'm not a driver, and I'm going about my day, I'm not traveling, I'm not driving, I'm just, I'm just enjoying my day, using my property, and I wish to be let alone, and you interfere with that, you have violated the purpose of your existence, which is to secure my rights in that property. And so, yeah, it, it does. And, and children... Is the same thing, you know, children is a statutory word, and if you're speaking it out of your mouth, then it is, uh, it's definitely going to be considered a legalese word. Um, I wouldn't use it in writing either because, uh, you know, there is, there is, there's no doubt about it. There's a whole lot to learn, and uh, I had this conversation with Carl last year. We were, I think we were on our way to North Carolina to go pick up it was to go pick up a, a sunroof for his Thunderbird. And uh, we're heading down there, and I'm having this conversation with him about, you know, how do you tell the difference? How do you uh, not tell the difference? How do you um, get your head into this and, and teach it? How do you get other people? Where, why is it so difficult to, to grasp this? And uh, the story he told me was about... Um, about a tornado that he was going through. 
he was uh, driving through, I think it was Texas, and he was uh, going down a highway, and there was all these people by an under an overpass, and uh, they were all waving at him, and they were playing in the water, and uh, the kids were all in the water, and he thought there was a baptism going on, and he was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not stopping, and he kept on going. Well, he didn't realize it, but there was a tornado uh, warning, and he was driving right into it. So uh, at one point, he felt all the hair on his body stand up, and he looked in his rearview mirror, and all his hair was up in the air, and he realized uh, he had just gone through a wall of water, and he realized he was in the eye of the storm. And, and he floored it, got through it, got through to the other side, drove about an hour and a half, and got into this little town, and he was just, he sat down, had a cup of coffee at a diner, and on the news, they were talking about the devastation this tornado had wreaked on this town, and there was one guy who was uh, being interviewed by the, by the news media who said, uh, he, was, he was explaining to the news, me, news media that you know, I told everybody in town to dig a hole. You know, you're going to get hurt. Eventually the tornado's going to come. Serves them right. They're all dead. You know, they used to laugh at me because I used to dig the hole. And, you know, it's hard ground. And, you know, I spent summer after summer getting my place ready, getting food stored up. And, you know, everybody's been laughing at me for years for doing this because, you know, the tornadoes don't come this far over or whatever it was. And uh, now they're all dead. And my family's safe. And, and Carl thought, this guy has a really bad attitude about what just happened. But it, he, he realized that the guy was right. You know, you, know, you got to prepare. And in life, uh, the legal system, the, the people who make their money uh, by confiscating property, they're not going after a 20-year-old who's got nothing. They're going to wait till you're 60 or 70 when you've got a 401k and you've got an annuity and a pension and a house, that's when they're going to come after you. And along the way, uh, you have to learn. You have to know that, you know, at some point in life, you're going to have an issue which is going to in involve the legal system and somebody's going to try to strip you clean of everything you've got. And that tornado is coming and you better prepare for it. Now, um, five was it five years ago? Yeah, it was late, it was Labor Day weekend, 2010. Anyway, I uh, you know five years ago. So I was, you know, I, I made a determination that I needed to know how to secure my property, my life, and to have it not stripped away from me again, like I had in 2004. And uh, so in 2010, I dedicated myself to that study of being let alone. And I thought it was redress. I thought it was other things. And I pursued and pursued and pursued. And that's what led me to the common law. That's what led me to this stuff. And when I was charged in May with this, um, with this uh, felony, and it went away three weeks later, I thought, wow, I can keep myself safe. I know how to protect my property. I know how I've learned enough. And, you know, I, it, it's like an airplane taken off the runway, all that energy for five years, just getting off the ground and getting into the air. You know, I, I, I realized in May that I was at a place where I can let off the throttle, I can hit cruise control, and I can just continue to do my show, help people with their questions, 
And in that way, I would continue to learn and I would continue to be sharp and continue to understand more and more and more because people explain their situations in different ways. So uh, I, I've learned a lot since I backed off. But, you know, that last five years, I sat in one chair at one desk in a renovated garage stall, and that's where I spent the last five years, just sitting there studying and studying and studying how to be let alone. Um, I'm hoping I can get um, Dr. Kate to uh, come in here for just a minute. Um Kate, I've I've given you a live mic. I hope you can you can hear me and and can uh, bounce in here for just a second if it's possible. I'm not looking yes, for you I'm to right say here. anything. Okay. Um, yes, I'd like I'd like for Kate Kate shared something with me right before the show uh, started, and you came in. I don't think you heard her her whole story about it, but I'd, I'd kind of like uh, for maybe. She's got a situation that might be perfect for a common law claim. Um, What's happened is, is that somebody has taken something she wrote and has included uh, her work uh, in another action. Yes. Carrie, could you look at your uh, Skype message, please? Okay. Okay. I'm I'm not looking for specifics, Kate. Um, I I simply was wanting to talk about when somebody takes uh, your property and and puts it to use use. Um, how can you can you basically put a stop to their use of your property uh, by by use of of common law? Gus, could you respond to that? Yeah, uh, you know, if somebody's using my property and I want them to stop, I'm going to write them a letter. You know, dear Bob, I, uh, I see that you you're using my property, and uh, I don't consent to you using my property and claiming it as your own. So you either give me credit for it or stop using it. That's one way to, to handle it. Or if you wish for them to stop entirely, uh, you let them know. And so that would be the first letter. You know. You know, the the first, dear Bob, this is what's going on. This is why I'm writing. This is what I wish of you to do. And uh, if you want them to uh, give public notice that they were using your stuff and that, you know, and that's why it's no longer on their website or, or whatever, you know, whatever else you want done. So that would be the first letter. The second letter would, you know, if, if there needs to be one, uh, would be, uh Bob, I see you're still using my stuff. I sent you a letter last week, and uh, I don't know if you got it or not, but here's a copy of it, and I require an answer from you within 10 days. You know, I hope you had a great weekend. Talk to you soon. And uh, or, or hope to hear from you soon or whatever. So, you know, you would pursue it in that manner, um, you know, because what if Bob doesn't know he's using your material? So you, you have to presume. Uh, that's- yeah. I'm sorry, Gus. This is Kate. Um, yeah. Terry, do you have uh, – uh, I'd, I'd like you uh, – thank you very much for that, but I'd really like Terry to get uh, on a subject uh, related to this uh, that involves some other issues that, that you are aware of, somebody that you knew uh, 
uh, and I'm, so forth. I'm if going you there. really wouldn't I'm mind, going, please. I'm going there. Um, well, the the idea is if somebody's using my property, um, the first thing I have to do is draw out demand, correct? Well, it's always the first thing. The first thing is to write a letter to to draw out the men, and uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, if if somebody's acting in an official capacity, then you need to draw them out of that official capacity. If they're acting already in their private capacity as just some guy, um, you know, without an official title, then they're not acting as a person; they're acting as a man. So it depends who you're dealing with and what the property is. Well, after after I've drawn out the man, yeah, um, then then it's possible for me to uh, basically put forth a claim and a remedy, correct? Well, the the, the process is you know, is letting somebody know that they're causing you a loss, okay, or some kind. You know, they're doing something that is interfering with your, your, your right to be let alone and that you wish for them to stop. So, you know, that's step one is making them aware that there's a problem. Number two is uh, pursuing it further. If they, if they decide to ignore you or to continue, then uh, you, know, you give them notice they're causing you harm and that you're going to seek compensation if they continue to do so. And if they do continue to do so, then now, now you've got two letters that you can give to the jury when you file a claim. And uh, the claim, you know, you can either go to court and open up a case and put in a claim and then put in notices, for instance, notice common law, notice that you're an idiot, notice that you require a court of record. You can put the notices in first. Or uh, what I prefer to do is I prefer to write the claim, Dear Bob, uh, you know, Please see the attached claim for damages you've caused to my to my property, and uh, it would say you know you trespassed by way of. You would write up a claim. I, you know, I don't know what the what the ongoing issue is, but let, let's say Bob stole your car and you want the car back, and he didn't realize it was your car because it was on some land that's kind of you know just out there in the woods, and it was an antique, and you were just letting it sit because you hadn't had a chance to get to it. Now he's got it. You let them know he's got, you know, your property. And so you're going to let them know that uh, robbery would be if you saw him take it. Theft is if he's got it, you know he's got it, and uh, and you want it back. So you would write uh, a, a, a claim that would say uh, Bob uh, does trespass uh, against, against I, a man, by way of theft. Theft uh, began on this date. Uh, and continues to this day, and you would literally write the claim and give him 21 days, 20 days, whatever you go. Know. I like to go with whatever the statutory terms are in the area that I'm in. So uh, some places it's 20 days, some places it's 21. I think in, in Vermont it's 20. Most places are 21. And uh, I would give him 21 days to answer. The, the claim, which I would have served on him by a process server or by the sheriff's department, uh, and then once he has that, he's got 21 days to answer, just like a summons. And when he does not answer, then I take the claim, go to court, and say, I had this man served with a claim. He refuses to answer, uh, or, or he might have answered. He might have said, you know, that's not your car. That's my car. That's my property. 
so whatever his answer might be, I would put that before the court. If he did not answer, I would require the court to pursue him, bring him into court, um, you know, take him into custody, bring him into court to answer, to give an answer for himself, to plead guilty, not guilty, or whatever. Uh, or uh, if he did give an answer, then I would require a trial date to be set so that I can put my claim forth before a jury in a court of record, and I would produce the order for the court, which I would expect the the man acting as judge and the the man acting as clerk to witness the truthfulness of my claim after it was all over. Uh, the jury would decide, you know, if it was truthful or not. They would pass their verdict on. And after I get the two signatures, the clerk would, would put the court seal on it, and I would give it to the sheriff for execution, you know, for whatever that order, whatever the order was to go you know, repossess the car or take possession of it and, you know, plus damages and court fees. So, the, you know, that, that's the basic process. And it works the same way if somebody's coming against you with a false claim or if it's oh. not a man that's coming against you and you want to, you want to, you want to flip the court as I, you know, the, the term that I've, I've heard used where you don't want to be treated as a defendant. So you, you, you turn it around and you put forward your own claim on this person. Uh, essentially the same process, correct? Uh, actually, it's not. Um, the The process of flipping the court, for instance, if you were to get arrested because you had two ounces of pot in your pocket and you're you're in jail and you're going to go to court and, uh, you know, before you get there, you take a piece of paper and you write on it, I am a man, an idiot to the to legalese and the customs of the legal society. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's flipping the court. That's you letting the court know but I'm a man. I, you know, I, I refuse uh, to have a title. Uh, I am without title, without representation before the court to settle any matter. Uh, bring the man forward that says I do harm, that I cause injury, that I, you know, that has incurred a loss. And so uh, that's flipping the court. That's you putting notice into their court that you require a court of record, that you require things done according to law, not according to legal ease. Uh, so that's different from filing a claim. If the uh, attorney decides, if the prosecutor decides to go forward and continue to prosecute uh, the man without, uh, you know, without representing another man, uh, only a man can actually make a claim. And he can go in with a representative. He can have somebody else represent his interest in that claim and do all the paperwork. But when the, when the time comes for that claim to be in court, only the man making the claim can speak because the attorney has no firsthand knowledge. So the man making the claim would have to come forward and say, you know, Gus uh, was in my yard doing donuts. He destroyed my lawn. I paid the landscape guy $1,800, and I want my $1,800 plus court fees back. He would testify to that under oath or affirmation, and I would have a chance to answer him. But if that man doesn't exist, and the prosecutor is pursuing a claim against a man uh, without representing some other man, then he's bringing a false claim into a public court. And in that case, that's barratry. And you, you would send him a letter saying, you know, back off, you're causing me harm. I don't believe there's a man. If, uh, if I'm wrong, 
then let me know the proper name and address of that man that I may settle privately. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it, there, is a, there is a difference between flipping the court and making a claim. Okay. Now, another thing is, uh, uh, let's say you're being pursued in family court or you're being pursued in some uh, traffic case or whatever. If you were to actually go and make a claim, where you laid a claim on the, on the court, you had the man served, and you had a receipt for all this, for the, for the process server, for the summons, for the court case to be initiated, to get the court case number, the docket number. You, know, you would lay a copy of all that with all the receipts onto their case, and you would give them notice of claim. In other words, you, you'd be saying, look, I don't care what you guys do. This ain't my court. Anyway, I'm letting you know there's a man, you know, that I'm a man, and I'm here only as a man. I'm not willing to take on the role of defendant or pro se. I'm not playing your games. Uh, and uh, here's proof that, you know, of the claim that I put in against the prosecutor in this case, the man acting as prosecutor for committing barratry and causing me harm. And so you would, you would lay a notice of claim on that, on that other court. Can we go back to Jim for just a second? Sure. Uh, Jim, you've got a live mic. I see you dropped and came back in. Um, I had a couple of questions, Jim. You okay. said there was no structure. You said there was no residential structure on your property at the time. No. Um, uh, at the time, I got the bill for five hundred dollars. No, there wasn't. Was there a residential structure on the other property you you were comparing it to? No, the 1.8 acres is empty. They were both wooded lots. Uh, do you know whether she had any agricultural uh, use going on on it? Uh, I know the fact that she did not. She went down. Um, uh, supposedly, the person who owned the property beforehand was getting charged a lot more money than what she got charged. Uh the woman gave up the property because the taxes were so uh, high, it went into lien. So um, she bought the property uh, at auction. And then what happened was she went in and she complained. She said, hey, look, she says, I have no access, uh, even though it clearly shows on the, uh, on the plot plan that she has uh, – access to my property of, of right away. And uh, the thing is, she had no road and has no road. And they've been, she, her, her family owns a, um, a company that rents uh, equipment like Kubotas and, and tractors and things like that. So she's been uh, putting like paths through her property. And I, I met with her and said, look, um, you have a right of way, and I showed her on the plot plan, and I said, uh, through my property down to wherever, but, you know, it's going to cost money. So the bottom line is, um, no, she she did not have uh, anything on it, but after she complained to the assessor, they lowered her taxes to whatever. It was $49, and it went up to, like, 50 Um but the bottom line is, um, I was living out of state, and they were they were hitting me up to like five hundred dollars 
uh, a year, and I have the same situation as her. I've got I've got a right of way, but it's going to cost me uh, maybe ten thousand dollars to put a proper road in. Uh, the bottom line is, uh, why is her value property? If you take one point eight acres, and and fifty dollars, and you divide it by eighteen, that'll give you what the property is per tenth of acre. Now, if you take that price and then you multiply it, uh, uh, what the tenth of acre is by twenty six, you'll get two point six acres on mine to get a tenth. If you multiply it by 26, I think it comes out somewhere near $79. So here they are charging me $500 when if I do a tenth of an acre of what they're charging her and multiply it to get my property, I should only be paying $79. So here for the past whatever, I've been paying like 400 and something, and then the property went up. Now, they had reassessed the property right after um, uh, shortly after 2008 when the market crashed, of course, they did, uh, and I went down to the local um, realtor in um, Caldwell Banker, and I said to him, I says, well, give me some wooded properties that sold around my property, and, and let me look at it. So they're assessing me for $37,000 a year, and when I did a comparable uh, of four different properties, I came to the conclusion they're assessing me twenty thousand dollars of property, his actual properties, on an average of four properties, uh, have sold for. Jim, they're charging Jim, me twenty thousand dollars more. Jim, do, the doesn't the assessor have access? Doesn't doesn't the assessor's website give you uh, the information regarding comparables? Um, I haven't gone to the assessor's um, website. What I did is I went to a realtor and I found out what properties were selling for. Yeah, but they, okay, they many a, assessors. I I don't know if your assessor does, but many assessors have an online appeal process, even, and they actually give you access to um, to the to the comparables to your property in the immediate area. Um, I don't know if you heard my question because my Skype uh, connection. Um, dropped and I, I had to call back in, but did you hear me ask if you're a tenant? Uh, a tenant? Explain. Yes, are you on the on the on the on the um transfer deed that um granted you uh your use of the property? Uh were you were you how are how does it list you? Does it list you as a tenant? Uh that's question um if i'm list, uh, as i understand uh, adding that is if i'm listed as a tenant then uh i i'm being assessed taxes because i am a tenant is that uh, well where i was trying to bring where i was wanting to bring it full circle to was is that they're they're treating all uh, actually property owners those that believe they are property owners, they are treating them as tenants. And like a lot of these deeds, these warranty deeds and quick claim deeds or whatever, they list you on the public record as a tenant, whether it's a tenant in common or a, a joint tenancy 
um, they they treat someone who believes they're in ownership of the property not as an owner but as a tenant and i'm i'm wondering gus if you've looked into uh this idea that a tenant is a person rather than a man yeah a tenant is a person you know and uh, another thing i'm pretty sure you've, you've probably covered it in past shows uh, or i mean i know you and i have talked about it um uh, you know, there's the acceptance of the uh, of the land. You know, when there's a sale, it used to be that one man sold a piece of land to another man, and he owned it outright, and that was the end of that. So one man would show up with cash, the other man would show, you know, would would meet him there on the property, and he would pick up a handful of dirt, and he would hand it over to the man with the with the money, and the man would give him the money, and that was it. That was, you know. Uh, there was an uh, offer and acceptance. And what happens today is because we're doing it all on paper in, in uh, some bank or some attorney's office, there is no offer or acceptance in that, in that regard with witnesses and so on. So the, the, the sale goes on to the public record, but the man never shows up to accept the land. So the state actually uh, treats whoever's there as a tenant, you know, in, in, while they wait for the man who owns the property to show up, and when that man shows up and accepts the property, you know they, uh, that's it. The state is out of it. So my understanding is that the you know the state is charging a fee to uh, hold on and protect the property with their fire trucks and their police department and so on, pending the appearance of the man who's going to accept the property as his own. And I know in New Hampshire, I've looked at the. Uh, the statutes, you know, and like I said, you know, I don't, it's hard to say I don't understand legal is, and then I go pouring through the statutes day after day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when you look into that subject, uh, there's there's the acceptance, I forget what the actual words are, but it's something along those lines. Uh, Rob Ryder, uh, who, who does uh, some YouTube stuff, is where I first caught on to this, and then John Heichel, my state representative in New Hampshire, uh, John and I, you know, pursued a lot of that information, and I'm pretty sure you and I had talked about that. So, if you remember the the actual words that they use in the statutes, uh, go ahead, and I'll just pick up again. Well, you know, I'm I'm not a person who studies statutes a whole lot, uh, other than those uh, particularly related to something I'm working on at the moment, um, and primarily in real estate. Um, mm-hmm. But I do recall that these these transfer deeds now provide for a grant, and the person granting title signs it, but the person receiving title does not. Therefore, there's never an acceptance of the title, and because of that, the title is in essence left open. So the state, in essence, claims that open title um and that by by that means the state then owns all of the land uh that is that is left in that kind of condition so one of the procedures uh to uh get a, what's known as a lodial title which is true ownership of the property is to go back to the original uh, uh, patent on the property 
and accept every transfer that's ever happened on that property to formally put a written recorded acceptance in of each and every transfer. And I'm wondering if uh, that should not include a statement that the owner is a man and not a person. Absolutely. The, the, it, it should begin by that statement. I, a man, accept. You know, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, not only are you accepting the transfer, but you're, you're making claim as the lawful owner of the property. And, uh, you know, I, I, but it all, absolutely, it all has to be done by a man because if you're doing it as a person, you're subjecting yourself to the, to the control of the legislature. Well, but see, what I'm coming to uh, in, this, in this train of thought, if you will, is that how can you go back against the county assessor as a man or woman if you have not uh, put your ownership as a man rather than a person? Okay, well, uh, the, when I was talking about that, I was talking about the, uh, the, the assessment value being different from vacant land and how, uh, it, for instance, uh, I know I don't know if they have it everywhere, but in New Hampshire they instituted a few years back a view tax. So if you live on a mountain and you have a good view, now you pay extra. So you know, it's all these kinds of statutory things that they put on the books and subject persons to. And in that regard, you, you would be dealing with harm being caused or you're, you, you would incur a loss of property, which is the money in your pocket, uh, because of the actions of the legislature, but you know what you're talking about is an entirely different subject. Where it, you know you, you would definitely have to lay that groundwork before you were able to bring that entire matter up uh, to the assessor's office. Now, John uh, John Heichel uh, in New Hampshire, when I was working with him, he went through that process of acceptance, and when he completed it, uh, he completed it in September. And the tax bills came out in, I think it was in the last week in November, and they were due sometime in December. So uh, he never got a tax bill. And he waited and waited, and it took a long, long time. It was like seven or eight months before he got a tax bill. He never said nothing. He just waited. And uh, eventually they sent him something, and then he thought, I must have done something wrong because, you know, they, said they did end up finally sending me a tax bill. And I don't know what he did from there, what I would have done is, is uh, sent them a letter and said, hey, I've accepted all the property as my own. I've made the claim. Who are you to send me a bill for my property? Okay, you're, you're looking to take my property, which is in my pocket, my money, uh, away from me for, for what? what what's, what's the purpose of this? And I would make them answer for that because uh, we would then start addressing the, the issue that the property had been accepted by a man and and I don't know if he did it as a man. I didn't check out his, his paperwork. I just remember, you know, we did study the stuff. And I did uh, look at his uh, paperwork, but not in, not with the knowledge I have now. This was, a, you know, a couple of years ago. So it was before I met Carl. So uh, when I looked at it, I wasn't looking at it with what I know now. So, uh, but, yeah, definitely. You know, if you establish that and you bring it forward, uh, you would definitely be on much more solid ground to, to uh, make a common law claim 
against, you know, the, you, you can make a, a common law claim against the town. You know, a man can take a person to court, uh, it, but the person can't speak. They don't have vocal cords. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a statutory construction. So, you know, you, you get the court against the person, they're going to be represented, you know, the, the town, for instance, is a person. They're going to be represented by an attorney who has no firsthand knowledge. And if I'm moving a common law claim and I require uh, testimony to be given under oath, uh, who's going to be doing that for them? Nobody. So I'm going to be standing there alone making my claim, and that's it. You know, the person was there and chose not to speak because they had no firsthand knowledge, and it's over. So it can get pretty ugly pretty fast, so they have a lot of motivation to, to work with you in, in a proper manner. Now, can well, I interject a question here, Terry? Uh, sure. Terry, you're, you're, you are actually, I think, on the verge of a, of a, a process here uh, that may be very viable. Going back to accept uh, all the transactions on the property and then claiming that as a man. So we're looking at a, uh, a new process here uh, to institute a lodial title through common law. Well, you know, well, one there, way... Go ahead, Terry. No, no, go ahead, guys. The, um, I, I've got friends that have faced uh, the foreclosure process and where the title or the, the paperwork, whatever you want to call it, has transferred from one bank to another bank. It went from, you know, uh, countrywide to, to whatever. I mean, it just bounced around. And, you know, they, they've, I've had these, these – I, I haven't had anybody do it yet because they don't understand what's in my head. And, and I, I don't know if I'm putting it across correctly, but if I make a claim for this property, if I'm saying this is my land and I'm willing to settle – all debt on this property, and I give notice to everybody, the bank, the church bulletin board, the newspapers, you know, I run an ad for three weeks consecutive, you know, giving a general public notice. If I do all this and I let everyone know that I'm selling the property on, you know, January 1st, it's going up for sale, and I've hired uh, Mary, the, you know, the justice of the peace, to do all the notices so that later on she can put into the uh, court record, uh, not the uh, court record, the uh, land records that uh, you know, an offer was made to settle all debts. Uh, if you have a claim, put your claim in with Mary uh, before November 30th, and I will, or before December 30th, and I will settle all claims made on this property, all verifiable claims. So you send that kind of notice out to everybody, and they either show up or shut up. Because, you know, you, you've got 30 days to make your claim or forever hold your peace. So you can establish quiet title through the legal process, or you can do it through the common law process, which is to give notice to everybody that you're willing to settle all debts. Just bring me a verifiable bill and I'll pay it. You know, so I haven't had anybody do it yet, but I think that's a much simpler way to move forward to, to secure a piece of land and to... You know, because you might have some guy, you know, let's say Jeff painted the, the, the fence or built a deck on the house 20 years ago, you know, before you bought it, but he's never gotten paid. He might show up and say, hey, somebody still owes me 800 bucks. You know, are you willing to make good on that? 
you know, now you've got a choice to make. Are you going to make good on it? You know, so you write the guy a check for 800 bucks, even though it wasn't your debt. You want the thing to be clear of all debt. You want to own it outright. You want to know that you're in honor, acting with clean hands and good faith, and, and so you settle the debt. And that's it. And if the bank comes forward and they have a verifiable claim, pay it. But who's going to come and testify on behalf of the bank? Well, I was, I, if there's another, there's another piece to this. There's another piece to this, and, and you, you touched on it a while ago. Um, you know, I, I want, I, I, we've only got about three minutes, so I'm, I, there's no way I'm going to complete this conversation about this other piece of it. But Ron McDonald has been on here, and I, I need to get a hold of Ron and get him back on here with all of us, mm. uh, because one of the th- one of the things that he's done is that he he filed a writ of um, a prohibito and mandamus with the uh, county uh, clerk's office, uh, which basically says all of these federal documents that have been recorded uh, putting a lien on these properties, which would also include the uh, tax liens, uh, are, are not... Uh, in compliance with the Constitution, you're breaking the law. You need to cease and desist, and 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 here's what you have to do. Basically, you said, my property in my pocket, talking about the cash or currency that's in my pocket. I'm hesitant to call it money because it's really not. It's it's a fiat. Uh, well, but it's also a foreign. It's also a foreign product. And if you look at your state constitutions, you'll find that that foreign product is is not um, lawful uh, payment of debt. And if they are denominating uh, the liens based in Federal Reserve notes, which is nothing but a, a piece of paper that is, in, in essence, a foreign product, um, it's not lawful payment of debt. And, and they've got to denominate any lien that they're going to put on a property like that or put or, or record like that, it has to be in compliance with the state constitution, which would only be gold and silver. Yeah, I so remember that, having that's another, that. That's another wrinkle. Uh, that oh. If we're going to put this process together, I think we have to include. Yeah, Ron's done some great work. I really enjoyed his book. Uh, but getting back to what you're saying about the money in my pocket, you know, the paper that's in my pocket, uh, if I say that it's my property, that the value that I see in that paper is mine, that's my property, uh, is, there, is there another man that's going to come forward and testify that it's not? Well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, it? It would be. That's my property. I said so. And here's what happened. I came across the Canadian border, they asked us if we had anything to declare, and we both said no. And uh, we sat down, and you know, it was Carl and I, and uh, they put this big pile of cash on the on the counter and said, "Whose is this?" And Carl says, "It's mine." And uh, so he went up and he starts talking to them, and and they said, "I thought you said you had nothing to declare." He says, "I don't." He says, "Well, you said you know, uh, you know," he says, "You know," there was this discussion about. United States money and Canadian money, and he said, and you said you didn't have anything to declare, 
you know, along those lines. And he says, I don't have anything to declare. That's not, that's not Canadian money. It's not American money. That's my money. It's my property. Gus? Yep. I hate to say it, but we're out of time. (laughs) That two hours went way too too quick. And I I was hoping to get more, more callers to call in, but, um, we are up against it. Um, we will see you next week, folks, <laughs> with walls in our minds. Gus, thank you so much. It was a great, uh, great call. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks for calling in. I don't know what I'm Hey, anybody on? Oh, I got you muted. Hold on a second. I'm going to uh, log back in and restart this so I can shut it down. I kept losing the signal on the uh, ordinary show tonight. I don't know what's going on with that. And I'm pulling up the board again. There it is. All right. I don't know if it's seeing me on here. Yeah. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.